Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 29 years of law enforcement analysis experience all with the Nashville Metro Police Department. He is currently the research manager. He has experience with the Army Corps of Engineers and actually retired as a colonel. He had two deployments to Iraq while being an analyst, here to share his perspective before he retires in January. Please welcome Richard Kilborn. Richard, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Jason, how are you doing? I am doing well. It was good to meet up with you at the Talia conference, and I am glad because I might have missed you since you are calling it quits here in January. So you got a little countdown going on? Oh, yeah, definitely. Looking forward to it. It's been a, a long career. It's been very rewarding. I look forward to going out the pasture, per se, but who knows what my future has in store for it. So I have no plans. All right. So as mentioned, you have 29 years of law enforcement analysis experience. So that takes us clear back to 1993. And so how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, it all kind of started in in that time frame. 1993 is when I decided to leave active duty with the U.S. And I had a a very good career with the Army at that point in time. I I enjoyed every aspect of it. I was an Army Corps of Engineer officer. My degree that I was working on right before getting off of active duty was management science operations research. So that's what my master's is in. And it kind of blends in with the functional area of my last two years, which was when I was at Fort Hood and Fort Knox, Kentucky. I was working with the Army's Test and Experimentation Command, and I served as an operations research systems analyst. And that's kind of a a researcher, per se. And so we designed tests of military equipment. At that time, it was armor equipment, like the M1 tank, and or engineer stuff like the floating bridges, digital topographic systems, those types of things, and, and test those prototypes that say there's three prototypes and kind of go through the testing cycle where you're testing all these different per- performance factors of those prototypes and then recommending in a final report scientifically, mathematically, and statistically which prototype was the best. And through that process, I learned and used a lot of the scientific method, which I think is critical in this job as an analyst. And uh, as you know, the scientific method you go through and define the problem, formulate a hypothesis, you actually conduct your experiment. And in this realm of things, in policing, it's kind of a quasi-experimental kind of design. And then you analyze that data and you make your conclusions. And so I was doing that with the Army and uh, gained a lot of experience. And and so back in 93, when I decided to get out of the Army off of active duty, my wife and her family, I can tell you a little story. They were looking at starting up a a sewing business, selling and repairing Bernina sewing machines. And that franchise kind of offered them several locations to look at, one being Nashville, Tennessee. And that's kind of where they saw their future. And so likewise, that's what I was looking at moving here to Nashville with my wife and her family. And I was in North Carolina at the time, and I saw a posting with the Metro Nashville government, and it was for a research analyst. And I I thought, well, you know, that's a perfect fit, especially after reading the description. And the, the problem was, though, that analyst position, the date for that application had already passed. And it was uh, a position, a research analyst with the Metro Police Department planning a research division. And so my wife and I, talked about it. She kind of prompted me and urged me, you know, not to settle, which I always believe in. And so I called the human resources department and talked to the contact person. Ended up, they talked to the hiring individuals within the department, the assistant chief and the division commander that was looking to fill that position. And I faxed in my resume and then I was included and permitted to join the pool of candidates. So uh, that being the case, 
there's a life lesson learned, I think, that everyone should look at, and that is you need to be proactive. You don't settle and go for what you want. It's kind of like me talking with my sons. I always tell them, you can be anything you want to be, but you have to go for it. It's not going to come to you. You have to go for it. So that was a big life lesson I learned in, in the hiring process and how I ended up with the Metro Nashville Police Department. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that your life lesson is to make phone calls and not just text or send emails. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So let's a couple of things, follow up questions from what you said with the military, talked about testing and we went into a couple of the weaponry and I'm certainly there's still some stuff that you can't talk about that you would have tested. And, but is there any stories there that you think about during your time trying to test the products and make recommendations? I, I, this, I guess the, the entire experience was kind of the thing and working with all these different individuals. Some of these, I mean, I did work on a, quite a few classified tests because my clearance was at a very high level. I had a, I had a top secret clearance. And accordingly, they kind of assigned me all those very classified tests. But I was I was amazed at some of the stuff that the government was working on. And so that was a long time ago. And that technology, you know, still has bearing today some of the things that they were looking at. But the mines that were involved, those C's from Georgia Tech, Stanford, MIT that were out on these test sites doing their thing and, you know, and how it may apply towards the military and the government. I think that was just amazing, and I kind of learned a lot from that. But the other thing was I had mentioned that I had worked on the digital topographic system that the, the Army engineers, was they were testing at the time, and that kind of branched off into, I mean, we're looking at it in how things apply with crime analysis, SRI, and all the crime mapping applications that are around today. Back then, it was more everything was work, workstation driven, and the the software was a little bit. It was slower. The digitizing process was much slower. But it was funny to see how those things were conducted then, and how they're achieved today. And just a point and click, you know, pull down menu. <laughs> uh, a lot more streamlined today. Oh yeah. So just and that makes me think of this. So the GPS came from the military. So did you work on any GPS related projects at this time? There were some applications and one of the classified tests had to deal with some GPS stuff. And, and yeah, that's all I'm going to say about okay. that. All right. Definitely, definitely was, don't want to get cool. you in trouble, right? I want you to enjoy yeah. retirement, right? So, all right. I understood. So you apply for this position and it's a closed application, but you make a phone call you get into the the process and as you told me yesterday when you're going through this interview process you're going up against people with phds and what more lot different experience from you yes sir what what i experienced was first i had to take like a written exam for the civil service kind of exam for metro and then from there they kind of prioritized or gave different tiers of groups of individuals. The top tier was looked at for the interview process and we had the first interviews. And then from there, they broke it down to like the final seven candidates. And I can remember sitting in the room looking around and everyone was kind of talking, you know, as to what their backgrounds were and what their expectations for the job would be. And of the seven, I was uh, there were only two people with master's degree, myself and another individual, and then there were the five remaining all had PhDs. But what I found just talking with everyone is they all had, they were pretty much academic folks. They didn't have the practical applied experiences in their, in their background. So I think that's what gave me the advantage was I did have the, the experience. A little bit serendipitous, it seems like, that worked all out for you. And... So take us back to 1993. You're walking in the office for the first time. What were some of the feelings that you had? What were some of the issues that you were dealing with? I think that the first thing I saw was, I mean, the police department is kind of quasi-military organization. You know, you do have a chain of command, the way things are structured. 
the, the way things go up and down the chain of command uh, kind of parallel a lot to what the military does. In fact, there's a lot of people, prior military and veterans, on the department and were so back then also. And uh, I think that uh, enabled me to walk in the door and have a little bit of a bond with individuals, you know, across the department, one place or another. And there were several assistant chiefs at the time that were prior military. In fact, the chief of police was a prior military. So there was a little bit of kinmanship, you can say, that took place and I felt comfortable. But when I stepped in the door and got to my office and kind of started doing my job, I saw that really we weren't doing much in regards to crime analysis. I was doing a lot of research and looking at different related topics, anything, everything, you know, kind of what crime analysts do today anyway is research. And uh, But from uh, the technical crime analysis viewpoint, we did have a section. There were two people in the division that I was in that were assigned as crime analysts and what they did was look at field interview reports and take the information off of that and put it into a spreadsheet and then put the pins on a map. So the pin map thing concept from way back <laughs> when. And that was it. That was crime analysis for the department. And the big thing was, you know, hey, we're trying to figure out a little bit more about we saw a red Corvette in the area of this crime scene. What do we have about a red Corvette scene around this area? And that was, you know, maybe glean off a field interview report somewhere. So that was the the gist of crime analysis. And as I kind of progressed in my job, I eventually took over that responsibility of crime analysis. And we built the crime analysis component within the department. And originally that was centralized. We had, we started off with like four sectors, or you could call them precincts, but back then we called them sectors throughout Davidson County because we have a metropolitan government. It's both the city of Nashville along with Davidson County. The, the governments are merged together. And we're, today we have eight precincts. So we went from four to eight. And so when we were more centralized, we had crime analysts centralized. They worked for me. There was actually a, a sergeant that worked for me that kind of supervised the crime analysts directly, and they were all sworn. And then I had two other crime analysts that were working with me more at the headquarters and doing the typical chick level kind of analysis, you know. And those sworn officers that were crime analysts each supported one of the sectors or precincts at the time, whatever, whatever year it was, you know, eventually the sectors became precincts when I think that was around 2003 or 4, uh, Chief Surpass came in and uh, re restructured the organization, renamed the sectors as precincts, and actually provided those precincts with some investigative capabilities and some other resources to kind of let those commanders have more control over those areas. Because hmm. during this time, those that may not be familiar with Nashville. I mean, Nashville has been growing and growing and growing for the past three decades. So I can easily see how different the Davidson County and Nashville would have been when you started in 1993, as opposed to when the new chief came in around 2003, because even in that amount of time, Nashville had a lot of growth. Oh yeah, we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth and a lot of change in how we were policing. Uh, you know, we started off when I first arrived and the way it was, was we have like different zones or beats. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, I guess every department kind of looks at it differently. You know, some departments may call them beats. We call them zones and we still do. And those zone officers were kind of responsible for their zones and we try to have it where they had about 30% of their time they could spend on proactive activities. But then we switched around that 2003-2004 timeframe when we created the precincts and pushed out all these extra resources. Those zones and zone officers that were responding to calls for service became less proactive and were just kind of more responsive to calls. And these new units that were proactive, there were flex units and crime suppression units. The flex units were those individuals that came as a team and their hours may flex throughout the day, but they would have special initiatives in certain areas to address specific problems and work proactively. And the crime suppression units were kind of 
doing the same thing, but they were more focused on the narcotics and prostitution types of activities. And uh, so the, we we had the whole concept switch from where zone officers were kind of their own thing in their own zone and took those responsibilities to where, no, now we want the zone officers to be reactive, the cost for service, and we have our own proactive elements to kind of try to prevent crimes before they occur. And that was the thought. But we switched about a year and a half ago. Now we're back to the old school <laughs> concept where we have taken those proactive elements that we had and pushed them back into to the zone officer category assigned to patrol zones. And we want those zone officers to be more responsible for their areas, to be engaged more with the community, that community policing concept. But quite realistically, I think we've been doing community policing as long as I've been here. It's been called a different name. Over the years, you develop a ComStat process and ComStat reporting, talking about accountability, and you mentioned community-oriented policing. And there's always these buzzwords and always these programs here that go on. I find it interesting that, you know, there's when it all comes down to it, no matter how it's sliced, you want the officers to be listening to the citizens and working with the citizens and understanding what the issues are in the area that they're patrolling. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's truly always been the case to some degree, but mm -hmm. as I mentioned, we kind of switched out and created all these proactive types of things. Those zone officers really weren't afforded the opportunity to do that very much because they didn't have that, that amount of proactive time anymore. They were just running from calls to calls, mm -hmm. you know? And so uh, we want to get back to that, and that's our attempt now as a, as a department. Yeah. So what was that decision based on, switching gears like that? I think societies changed. There were some negative impressions from these special initiative teams that we had out there that were targeting different areas for specific types of crimes, and they were viewed negatively by the, the public in general. Mm -hmm. And so that concept so we we try to step back from and then we, our chief now kind of is of the viewpoint that we just need to get back to the basics the way we used to do things. Hmm. All right. Well, let's get into some stories then. Do you have a couple of analyst badge stories? For those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works on. So which one do you want to talk about first? I'll talk about the patrol allocation assessments that mm -hmm. I work on. We annually go through a rebid cycle within patrol where the patrol officers get to rebid their precinct that they want to work in and which detail or shift they want to work in. So they go through and actually tally up from the highest priority assignment and that they may want down to their lowest. And based on their seniority, they get their pick, you know. Mm -hmm. And part of that comes down to this patrol workload assessment that I do that says, okay, we have 450 zone officers out there, let's say, that are police officer ones and police officer twos and FTOs. Actually, the PO ones usually don't fall into the rebid, but the PO twos and the FTOs, we have 450. What's the best allocation for those within the precinct? So. Central Precinct needs X number, East Precinct needs X number, South Precinct needs X number. And how does that break out by shift or detail? We call them detail. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what should their optimized day off structure look like? How many officers should be off? We work four tens now. We switched over a year and a half ago to four tens for the within patrol. So which officers are going to have off on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Which how many officers on that detail and precinct are going to have off on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? So I go through and and do that. But way back when, I guess my badge I want to talk about is back in '94 or somewhere in that ballpark. I, I remember going to a conference and there was a sergeant Mark Dallo from Dallas Police Department, and he had developed like a little Excel program using Solver that went through and kind of helped look at how to kind of assign and allocate officers by day of week and, and hour of day. And so after attending that, 
I, I kind of stole some of his ideas and I went into Microsoft Excel in the solver and I used some math, math programming and established conditions to determine optimized scheduling for the patrol officers we had back then. And I thought that was very credible because prior to that, I mean, there was no scientific approach to any of that. It was pretty much just what I guess the leadership felt, you know, here's what, how many officers should be assigned to each of the sectors or precincts. We kind of transitioned from there, actually. And I was kind of proud of that work that I did. We actually ended up, get, I applied for a COPS more grant back in the day, and we ended up with a program called Police Resource Optimization System PROS that was developed by Analysis Central Systems for workload analysis. And we used that for a number of years. But the first time I ran that, it was equivalent to saving $17 million of manpower by better allocating the patrol personnel and matching them up with the demand for patrol services. Okay. So, that's that's impressive. <laughs> Seventeen million dollars in the nineties. That's a, that's a good bit of coin. Yeah, that was pretty decent. And then today, now we use actually Corona Solutions deploy software, and we do the same thing with it. And so over the years, it kind of helps. I mean, everyone has all these departments that I talk to. Everyone has issues about police resources. I'm talking about personnel. You know, hiring, loss of sworn, all those types of things. And and we need to maintain a, a good way, scientific approach of optimizing what we have by scheduling and allocating those officers when and where they're needed. And so that's what the software actually does. Yeah. So what are um, some of the key indicators that you've looked at? Is Most of the time, you know, you talk about calls for service to an area. That's usually one that's high on the list. What are some of the others? Well, when we assess all this stuff, I mean, essentially, we're looking at all the calls for service information from the CAD system. No matter if it's a barking dog or if it's a murder, it requires an officer activity, you know, their presence at a location to do something, that demand for service. And that's just important to, to be aware of that. But the the thing that comes out of it, the, the lesson learned is, you know, many times what we find is we don't have enough officers. And so we can use some of this analysis to go to the mayor or the city council and say, hey, it would be helpful to have additional officers so we can not have all these pending calls per se. So that's one thing to look at because as time has progressed and we, you talked about the growth in Nashville and you're, I know you're very familiar with it living here for a while. Mm -hmm. We have so many people here now that the change has been tremendous that it's not uncommon to see some calls, you know, where the, a citizen calls in and it takes hours before an uh, officer can arrive. So that's a, a great concern, and that's part of the things that need to be looked at in this whole process. The other factor that comes into play is if we don't have enough officers and if they're running from call to call and we can't meet minimum staffing for safety reasons for officer safety. You know, we always want a minimum number of officers out on the street at a given time for safety reasons and to be able to service the public. But they're not able to take excuse days off, their vacation days or whatever, whenever they need to. And that leads to it an impact on their morale. Likewise, as their morale is low, then we may lose them. We don't want to do that nowadays. Mm -hmm. Uh, and recruiting is becoming harder and harder. So all this stuff kind of blends together with that. Yeah. So it seems like it could obviously difficult to get the right data to assess the situation. You had mentioned in the beginning of the interview, the scientific method and coming up with hypotheses and testing them out. But in this case, when you say how many officers is enough officers? That's a very difficult question to answer. It, it is extremely difficult. And then, I mean, you're looking at millions of data points out there when you're looking at CAD data. And uh, that's one thing good about these vendors. Now we have Corona Solutions deploy software. They get our CAD downloads, and we can look at that information one way or another and slice and dice it. So it, it takes all that. It lets you kind of data mine it a little bit and come out with some results that make sense and can have some impact for decision makers throughout metro government, you know. So I'm just thinking is what data points could be out there that you could leverage for this situation? Because calls for service is only going to take you so far. 
right? That's mm -hmm. where you actually have to have somebody making the calls for service. And some people are a lot happier to make calls than others, as we know. Is there data sets out there that you wish you were able to leverage for this project? No, I think we, I mean, we've been pretty fortunate. I've been, as you mentioned, I've been here 29 years to the goal. And one of my critical thoughts from the beginning, day one, was needed to, needing to gain access to all the data. You know, we're fortunate. I mean, as a crime analysis section and within strategic development, we and all the analysts that work here have really good access to the forms of data that we do have, whether whether it's from our record management system, our RMS, or if it's through the CAD system, which is managed by an entirely different department within Metro. We still have access to that information. We do get other information to kind of consider, you know, some stuff from the planning department, looking at the growth patterns, permit, all those types of things that take place. And that also is where our, that in our Metro IT department is where the GIS custodians are for the government, Metro government. And they provide us with some of those additional layers that are nice to look at at a time to see different perspectives on things. Hmm. All right. Let's move on to your other stories then. So I'm interested to hear about the serial murderer case that you worked on back in 1997. Yeah, we had a, the AKA fast food killer, Paul Dennis Reed in Nashville. And back in 97, I worked with some detectives along with another individual in the crime analysis section. And we developed a number of maps that were used in the courtroom that helped depict the travel path of Paul Dennis Reed during his murder sprees. And uh, along with that physical evidence that was obtained during the investigation, the maps helped the jurors kind of better visualize the places and times associated with the, how the cell phone towers matched up with the locations of, and times of the murders. And so uh, I, I felt that was something of, you know, one of those badge things that, <laughs> to talk about because Paul Dennis Reed, that was a, that was a big case here, and he was convicted and sentenced to death for seven murder counts. I mean, it was it was big news. It was the public really didn't feel safe during that period of time. What was his mo? He would go into these fast food restaurants, McDonald's, Captain D's, Baskin Robbins, and went in there and, and rob the employees in the store, and then shoot them like execution style so was he doing this like late at night when there wasn't very many people around i'm trying to remember the time frames if i remember right that may not necessarily be the case that there may have been one of those instances that was more during the day one of them was actually up in the clarksville area the uh, i want to say that was the gosh that was so long ago i think that was maybe the baskin robbins and the uh, captain d's and mcdonald's were here obviously he he's robbing them but he also decides to kill them as well which is kind of a whole other level of not only wanting to get money but also wanted to harm these victims yeah and one of his i mean one of the things in his appeals and stuff that were filed in all these cases was that he was mentally ill and the government was doing things to make him more mentally ill and it was weird but he was eventually he eventually died back in i want to say 2000 early two, maybe it was late 2007 ish eight ish somewhere yeah. in there yeah so when you say die was he executed I, i'm trying to I don't think, I think he died of some weird cause, like a, his, yeah. he was still under appeal because these yeah. seven murder counts. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes in, about the case. But I want to go back mm -hmm. to the cell phone towers because this is 97. The amount of people using cell phones certainly isn't what it is today. So I imagine that process of dealing with the cell phone companies and getting this data in my mind seems like it would be a very crude process but what do you remember about it yeah it was a, a, a little bit and I, I remember there's a back and forth give and take with the the companies that the investigators were going through and getting that information data so we could map it and then working it out with them and um, it was a little bit trying that you know the the 
do that and get it, and then to actually have the precise location of each of the towers, had to go out, you know, with a with a physical GPS device, you know, the to get those X Y coordinates as to the precise location of the towers themselves, you know, and validate those. Oh. It was a little different back in the day, but in reality, when you think of it, it's, it's something simple, you know, mm-hmm. that we talked about the patrol workload assessment stuff. That's pretty complex. Doing something like the mapping stuff was simple. It was, it was just a little hard work, you know, at the time, but it was simple. And But it had major impact on, on the jurors so they could visualize things. What's going on, analysts? My name is Manny San Pedro. I'm the technology director for the IACA. And here is my public service announcement for analysts. Don't become overly reliant on Excel. Use it to analyze and break down your data. It's a fantastic tool. Fantastic. And it's free as part of the Microsoft Office offering. But don't use it as a database. Use a database as a database. Connect to the database with Excel and then use it for your pivoting, for all your slicing and dicing, even developing your dashboard. But again, don't use Excel for everything because it may not be the best tool for you. Hi, my name is Brian Napolitano, and I'm here to talk about name badges. When you're attending a training or a conference, please make sure your name badge is at an appropriate height and is legible enough so that strangers won't be staring where they shouldn't, just so they can figure out your name. Thank you for listening. One other badge story that you have here, how you described it as a rank of prisoner release, that program that you helped start. Yeah, this is another thing. It's not really like crime analysis, but, you know, based on my expertise at the time, I was using SPSS statistical software, and the courts kind of asked for some assistance, and I have a skill set, I kind of as a operations research systems analyst, I kind of looked at an approach to prioritize and rank which prisoners should be released early. Back then, we had a lot of jail overcrowding, and a lot of cities were going through the same thing. And so we were trying to figure out the best way, and the courts were trying to figure out the best way to release people that really didn't need to be in jail. Mm-hmm. And so I, I developed a program using Simplex, which is like a mathematical algorithm, min-max theory, and decision analysis and gaming theory were combined in there to determine which prisoners should be released. And so the the judge could run a report every day and look at it, and at the top of the the table or the list, decide how many and who they would release. And that programming algorithm and everything that I did using SPSS was later incorporated by Oracle, came in and provided some software services to the courts, and they took what I had and incorporated into their Oracle services and gave the courts that ability that they could do across the board. But before then, I actually had to take a little SPSS program and kind of install it on a separate little computer with that program that I wrote, and then the courts could kind of just run it. Yeah, they probably made a nice bit of money off your idea. Oracle, that is. Yeah, I've I've thought about that at times, but... So what are some of the factors that go into this? I mean, obviously, as as you're talking, I'm thinking through what they're in for, what their entire criminal history is, what are some of their needs assessments. That is where my head is going with some of these factors that you would be baked into this report. What are some of the others? Yeah, that... I mean, that that was those were the main things, what you just mentioned, criminal history, what they were in jail for. Then there was input that I had received from a number of judges that where they would rank those offenses, those those Tennessee codes that individuals were rated were arrested for, and, and then say this would be the most severe, then this would be the less severe and kinda of incorporate some of that and, and use a like a weighted point system with those and then let's see i'm trying to remember age was a factor the older the individuals the less recidivism they were expected to 
you know, the have, there was, gosh, I can't recall all those factors or elements that we looked at, but there were several. And uh, But they all had a, a bearing on, you know, society here in, in, in Nashville as to who's being released out on the streets. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's something that can get media attention real quick. You have them released and commit a, a major crime, and then it's like, oh, why was this individual released early? So, yeah. Uh, now, was there other follow-up as well? So you're obviously releasing these folks, and you, you obviously might hear about it if somebody is then arrested or is mm-hmm. a recidivist. But was yeah. there other information you were collecting after the fact as well to show how accurate this data was, like more success stories? There was some look at the recidivism rate for those early releases and it was determined that it was acceptable Mm -hmm. and and that it was a smart and logical program and they felt confident in in the results that they saw the the rate was low you know so Mm -hmm. the the judges you know sometimes can be hard to please and they're the ones that were making the final decisions on all that so how is the scientific method applied to this project first you have to define what the problem is and kind of what we're just discussing and going through what are all those elements that you really needed to consider and then you know analyze it all kinds of different ways kind of looking at it separately from even the program that came out with the early release rankings you know just delving into all kinds of research and what other people are doing and other cities are doing and then scientifically recidivism types of things that you need to consider you know so you did all that background research come up with a plan then you experiment with it played around with it you know it it wasn't like the, the first time i went through and and developed that algorithm that that was it it got revised several times mm-hmm. went back and forth with the uh, one judge in particular and then ended up you know finalizing that so that the results came out pretty much what what they wanted to see. And then they were happy. And then following up with that, you know, with some research later on to look at, in fact, there was a, there's a group in the court system that does their own analysis. And they kind of did most of the analysis and the follow-up and looking at this recidivism of those prisoners that were released early. And I looked at it also, but they got, they actually did more of a deep, deeper dive than I did. And, but it, it was very favorable, and so that was one of the reasons why when the the courts were also going through a major revamp of their overall, part of it was prestigious stuff, but just their overall IT system, and they were using, they had Oracle come in as consultants, and they were actually adopted as their vendor, and they looked at what I had done and, and pretty much stole my algorithms and <laughs> adopted them in their application that they later used for the same purpose. All right. So it does sound like there was some initial testing at first and that went back and forth with the judges. And then you validated the results through recidivism rates. Actually, we probably didn't validate the recidivism until it was in place. And we didn't. Once it was going, they were happy. There was no adjustments made to it. Once we were accepted it and, you know, after, you know, kind of just coming up with some examples, when it was a trial, no one was actually released based on the results initially. We, we kept on talking about what if, what if this, what if that, well, let's add that to this, or let's take that one out, let's change these, these priorities or weights on these values over those values. And then got to a point where the judges were happy, and that's kind of when we went with it. And then I think it was maybe six months later before we even looked at the recidivism and the impact of it. And and from my knowledge, nothing was amended or changed to the programming after that point. So let's go on. Then I do want to talk about your two deployments, why you're in this position, because I think that is a unique situation. You are the research manager for in in this unit, and you end up getting deployed because you're still in active reserves. You have two deployments to Iraq that last 
over a year each, right? Each for a year. So okay. as a reservist, you kind of get deployed for a year. Many of the active components may get – some of them were only getting four-month deployments, some of the Marines, but many of the Army were getting like six-month deployments. It just depends. And then others were getting yearly, like an annual – like a year's worth of deployment, as in my case. But yeah. Yes. So, and then then you're doing similar work where you're working with Army Corps of Engineers and you're doing testing during this time, correct? I was an Army Corps of Engineer officer and I was kind of doing engineering stuff. Mm -hmm. And my first deployment was with the Gulf Region Division of the Army Corps of Engineers and I was assigned in Baghdad and that's where our headquarters was. And we're managing all the infrastructure rebuild in Iraq. And so all that stuff that took place like in the initial days in Iraq where the U.S. and everyone else, all the allied partners went in and started bombing and using the smart bombs and and kind of destroying the infrastructure within Iraq. Our our task was to go back in it and rebuild that at least to the same level it was prior to the war, pre-war conditions. So, you know, like the electrical generating plants, those big electrical plants, the water purification plants, schools, hospitals, the oil fields, those types of things. Some people would say the oil fields were the most important. (laughs) Yeah. We had a whole little component within the the unit that that's all they worked with, the oil field stuff, you know, and that was major. That was big visibility. They kind of restored that back to where it was. Yeah. But so, that was our task there. So yeah. I did a lot of project management, and, and that was my job. Then my second deployment was more so working with our bases. So all those bases that we had, our soldiers at, and Marines and sailors and airmen, actually rebuilding or providing the necessary support services there. So I worked with the major contractors that were in theater, and that involved either engineering where you go in and construct stuff or the contracted services of, you know, like electricity, water, sewage, housing, all the dining facility support, the laundry support, all those types of things that are necessary to sustain those bases and working with those contractors is kind of what I did my second work. So how was it your project manager one day, you take a year off, come back. How was that coming back from being off a year to the project management job? I have to be upfront. It, it wasn't easy. I mean, I when I got back to work, it's like, you know, I got to remember all this stuff again, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, but I felt very confident in the individuals that were back here in Nashville kind of filling in and, and doing the job that I normally do. All that cross-training that we do within the com- component kind of pays off in the long run and definitely showed during that period of time where I didn't feel like there wasn't something that they couldn't handle. In fact, I would communicate periodically, you know, via the telephone with people that were back here if they, there were questions or concerns or you know, and just find out what was going on and everything. I mean, it it did, definitely didn't break when I was gone, which was a good thing. So. All right. Good deal then. All right. Well, let's move on to some other topics then. I, I do want to get your advice for analysts. You've been doing the job for 29 years. What advice do you have for our listeners? I guess the first thing is just looking at the word analyst. What must uh, analysts do? What, what, what do they do? You know, they analyze what? They analyze the data, and that data has to be turned into something that's usable information, you know. And in order to do that, an analyst, any new analyst, must first know the data and everything about it. So go out, do a lot of ride-alongs. It all derives from those initial reports that are taken. You've got to understand that process and what it entails what is that information, that data, and then you need to be able to use the technology that's available, the hardware, the software, to mine that data and get to it. So the, the hardest thing I, I learned 
being here and I had to work from day one through whenever it was just getting, as we mentioned earlier, having access to the data. And I take that for granted today, but all that hard work in the past kind of paid off. And early in my career, I spent an enormous amount of time working with the IT folks and working with other departments, working with the ECC folks, the emergency communications people with the CAD data so that we could get that information. I would tell those new analysts that sometimes, I mean, you have to work with your chain of command, you have to work with the IT people. Sometimes you may not be able to have direct access to the live data because that kind of slows things down, but you can work around that. You can get like views of the data or you can have tables that are created early, early in the morning and pushed to you so that you don't impact the live RMS. You can use like a data warehouse and type of management approach, which just only get those fields of data that or those tables that you need. You don't need them all. You don't need every single table in RMS. You only need certain things. Figure out what those are and just get that. Brings to mind, I don't know how many analysts actually actively look for new data sets. Obviously, you have the ones that are in the police department and you should know which ones those are. But there's mm -hmm. certainly data sets that are outside the police department that may be helpful to the analysts. I always think back to my time in Cincinnati Police Department when I discovered that Parks and Recreation had a a database in which they recorded their records and had a note section and would put sometimes different information on TV or vehicles, license plate numbers. There was a whole host of information that could be in there and identifiers that I could research more heavily after finding those incidents. And so I always encourage analysts to be on the lookout for new data sets throughout their city, really. Yeah, I agree. That, I mean, that's very important. We get a lot of stuff from the planning department with the different layers that they have. So you can see information on different parcels throughout the county, ownership, if you're trying to look at information on socioeconomic stuff, it could be in there in the liquor stores, you know, or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of stuff you can find in those GIS mapping layers. Probation and paroles is another source. You, I mean, I would think everyone should be trying to get that information. That's a separate thing. In our case, it's maintained by the state. You would want to look at vehicle registration information in your county. You can get that from the vehicle registration folks. Yeah, there's all kinds of sources. I can remember when we had the tornado come through. I mean, we were trying to get information on the the path and where the tornado's going, you know, the expected path and what that, I forget what you call it, like a, a fan or whatever, that the area that may be impacted. So mm -hmm. you got to get that information and push that out so that individuals know, that, hey, we need to look at the citizens in there and see people that may need help or assistance to get out of those areas or after the tornado, you know, mapping information that's available there as to where the actual path was, you know, from those climatologists that have out there and study all that information. And you can actually plot the exact path and then go follow that up, you know. So, yeah, all kinds of things out there that you really need to look at in regards to policing. Yeah. Hmm. What are you surprised the law enforcement analysis profession hasn't figured out yet? And when you started in the 90s, you, you would think, oh, by 2022, we'll have this figured out yet. And yet we're still struggling with it. My thing is, as a crime analyst, my focus has kind of been primarily on that. But what I'm, I'm thinking is within law enforcement, the word I'm thinking is like, well, what are the analysts that we normally have? All the training, all the conferences, all the kind of stuff that I read and research talks about crime analysts, intelligence analysts, and, and yes, and the difference between the two or the, the similarities. But there are other analysts out there, I think, and I think it's an emerging trend that we're seeing those responsibilities evolving, changing, shifting back and forth. We have investigators that need analysts, you know. Do we have analysts that are 
just dedicated to providing support for investigators do we have so that they can solve specific crimes or a crime series, you know? And then you have the real-time crime centers. They have analysts that are pretty unique. They're looking at specific things. They're looking at uh, all these different cameras and those types of things. Those skill sets are a little bit different. And you have the traffic analysts doing analysis of traffic-related things. I don't know about you, but, I mean, there are quite a few fatal accidents that we have in our county. And it's amazing, you know, I mean, the press and the media and the emphasis is always on murders and shootings and all those types of things. But really, a life is a life, and that carries a lot of value. And we do lose quite a few people from fatal traffic accidents. So that's yeah. an important thing, the, the emphasis on traffic analysis. Then just a general police research analyst, you know, kind of some of the things I was talking about with the patrol allocation assessments, uh, looking at our crime reports, you know, our CompStat process. Uh, you have someone that just does that aspect of stuff. But social me media analysis, who does that? Do we want everyone to do that, all those analysts to do it? About social network analysis, we kind of do that here in Nashville, and that's used across the board for many reasons. And are you looking at analyzing individuals, groups of individuals, crime trends, series, patterns? Those things kind of are merging. They're kind of going back and forth, as I mentioned, between all these different positions within, I know, our department, you know, and the considerations. And I know that's taking place at a national level, but you don't really hear about those other analytical categories that much. You just hear and are easily able to Google and research crime analysis and intelligence analysis, but these other guys, what about them? Yeah. yeah, I just had Christine Talley on the show. She's from Riverside County Sheriff's Office in California. And that was one of the first things she had to get over was the fact that the folks that she was working with didn't understand what she did or what she was supposed to do. And that's still something that this profession's struggling with is analysis seems like too generic of term. And they folks don't necessarily know what the analysts are there, purpose, what they can, what they can't, what they shouldn't do. It's still something that we're struggling with to go along with the lines of classification like you were talking about. I thought of another question here. You went through management training, both with the military and with a master's degree. And then you obviously these decades worth of experience as a manager. Where do you sit in terms of educating leaders and managers is a lot of training necessary or you think you learn most of what you know by on the job training you've hit on one of these long-term questions that have been debated for years and years and years <laughs> that's uh like leadership if you want to call it that way can leadership be taught or is it some inherent you know, in your DNA. I feel, based on my military training, that leadership is something that's taught. And it's something that people learn. And there's there are many leadership courses out there. I think, for me, the military does a lot of that. They actually address it specifically as leadership training, you know. And I think that's important. So I learned a lot through the military, through Metro government here. They do have supervisors training. Most of it's focused on things you need to do as a supervisor, what forms you need to fill out for specific reasons <laughs> and why, things that you need to do to kind of cover yourself, you know, yeah. and make sure you do the right thing for the employees. So, yeah, I think everyone... I mean, there's lots of leadership books out there that, you know, I always encourage everyone that if, if they want to be good at what they do, they really can't just settle on going to work eight and a half hours a day or however, it, whatever it is. But when they go home, maybe buy some books on things that you know that will help improve yourself, self-improvement books, and that may be leadership in this case, and kind of read up on that. Because leadership, I, I do believe, is a learned thing, and you can read about it and learn from others and others' mistakes. Obviously, part of that is that, you know, as a leader, you, you're going to make mistakes, but you don't want to repeat those same mistakes over and over again, especially young leaders. It's almost an expectation that 
if you have someone that works for you, you need to groom them and you need to allow them the, the opportunity to make those mistakes and learn from them. But again, stress that they shouldn't repeat a mistake over and over again. So. Yeah. This is another one for you. Education requirement. Positions come up as analyst, research manager, and they may have a either a bachelor's or master's degree requirement. And I, I've talked to several folks, uh, analysts, about this requirement because some people don't have it. They don't have the the bachelor's degree, but they've been in the analytical role. Some people have worked their way up to managers and supervisors without that degree. And mm -hmm. so there's obviously people out there that can prove that they have the qualifications, the capabilities to do the job without actually having the degree. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on that. And what I've seen from my experiences initially, you know, for a job opening they, like mine, it may require a master's degree, which it does. But and that may be a, a good start because you're hoping that someone has either experience plus the education that helps them do their job better. Mm -hmm. But the other thought is I've seen from my experience over the years, many people that have worked in a position for a large number of years and they learn on the job. So that on the job training it can't be replicated. And every job is very unique. Every location is very unique. So, like, for example, our police IT director for a number of years was an individual that kind of worked his way up from high school, had a high school education, and that was it. Then go for a bachelor's degree and started off in the mainframe room, working on the mainframe, and eventually became the director of the IT department in, in the police department. And that was just from his experience, learning on the job, learning how to program, doing all the different things, learning hardware configurations, all the conceptual things that an IT director would need to know. So in that case, I, I definitely see the advantage of someone that where their education may not be as important as the, the experience. But many times you'll see the starting positions for most people are going to be where there's going to be an educational requirement, you know, whether, you know, the college level, whatever it may be. But I, I'm, I'm never surprised when someone is selected for a position and may only have like a high school education, but they've been doing the same job for 20 years or whatever and, and are pulled up to a executive level or whatever you may want to call it, a leadership management role. All right, good deal. Let's talk personal interest then. You told me you're a bourbon snob. And oh, yeah. which is all right. So, <laughs> what is your favorite bourbon at the moment? There's so many, Jason. I just can't. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a heavy drinker. Put it that way. I don't want to mislead everyone to think that I am, but I do not like yet at least right. <laughs> exactly. I do like my bourbon, and I am kind of snobby about it. And I've been into it for a number of years. I probably like. I hate to say it, but I, I, I. One of my favorites are the Weller lines of bourbon. Mm -hmm. It's a wheated bourbon. Wheated bourbons tend to have like of a sweet type of little taste to them. And uh, you can get it in a lower proof or a higher proof in regards to Weller. Uh, I think based on the, the fact that bourbons today are very allocated, you know, as, and they're hard to get, especially in the area that we are here in Nashville. seems like you can have people camping out overnight at a liquor store to try to get a bottle, a special bottle of these allocated bourbons. And Weller being one of those, sometimes it's hard to get your hands on them, but you have to kind of groom your your sources so that like a particular liquor store become a good customer and, you know, get well known and kind of develop those relationships to kind of have a chance of getting those allocated bourbons but yeah if i could get a lot of weller i'd be drinking it all the time but i i just can't get it as much as i would like to put it that way all right so all right well hey retirement's coming up as we mentioned any plans right now i think i'm just going to kind of ease off into green pastures just take it easy for a while who knows i may end up working part-time i may do some volunteer work or 
if my wife gets tired of me being around all day, I may end up working full time again somewhere. Who knows? Well, but, I guess, uh, uh, could just start, uh, you know, standing in line for bourbon, like you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> that, right. that, that could be a job. Yeah, true. Hey, I, I do want to mention that our paths, when they first crossed, you know, I had applied for Nashville Metro to be an analyst there and decided not to take up your offer. And it, certainly no regrets, but I, it's been fascinating over the years for us to keep in touch as we've seen each other at the conferences every so often. And it's been great keeping in touch with you over the years. And, and I certainly wish you the best of luck and happiness in retirement. I appreciate it very much coming from you, Jason. That means a lot. And thank you for those words that I, I look forward to in my retirement. I do. I really do. All right. We do like to follow up with our guests. So you have to make sure that you leave me your personal email so I can put you in the where are you now segment here in a year or so. All right. It sounds All great. Right. Let's finish up with words to the world then. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Rich, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? My words of the world are nerd and geek. Yeah, be humble, be proud, being called a nerd or geek. Embrace the nerdist. I've had many chiefs of police that are referred to my component within the department as the nerd section, though that analysis doesn't matter if you can't communicate the results to your audience. Learn to use your visual content, use non-technical terms, become a storyteller, focus on the bottom line, and stay out of the weeds. <laughs> Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Sounds great. But I do appreciate you being on the show, Rich. Thank you so much, and you be safe. You too, Jason. Thanks. Hi, this is Sean Fisher. And at my work, we're known as the Nerdery. And we're proud of it. Embrace who you are. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.